Thank you, Holly. John chapter 2 in your Bibles, if you would please go there. John chapter 2. Yesterday was the memorial service for Martha Smith, and as we all know here at church, and we were blessed with Martha, she was a godly lady who had definitely had a passion for the Lord, passion for her family, passion for her church family, and even at 101 years old, she still lit up a room with her smile, with her ability to have a conversation with her personality, but from what I am told... And what I witnessed a little bit, Martha was also a little bit of a fanatic for the Ohio State Buckeyes and the Cleveland Indians. True? She, I am told, that when she was watching an Ohio State game, if you wanted to have a conversation with her, you waited till the commercials. We wouldn't think that from, from sweet Martha, right? But she was dedicated to her teams. And a few days before she passed away, I was in an altar care, and we were, we were visiting, and she was watching, watching the Cleveland game on TV, and she didn't make me wait until the commercials. We still had a conversation. And I, I was telling her that in a couple days after that, I was actually taking the boys to a baseball game, and uh, she thought that was great, you know, was, was hoping the boys would have a good time. She was excited. I don't think she missed too many games. She didn't miss too many ball games, whether it was basketball for Ohio State or football or, or a Cleveland game. She was a zealous sports fan. She had a passion. She had a zeal for something that she enjoyed. And you know what? That's a good thing. That's a very good thing. It's good to get excited about the things that we enjoy, right? I, th I think to live life passionately is a blessing. I think it's certainly better than the alternative, Right? Does anybody really want to just drudge through life with no zeal, no desire, just getting through life? Or do we yearn to live with, with, with some sort of fire in our bones, some sort of excitement, some zeal, some passion for what motivates us? I think that's the way most of us want to live, especially when it comes to our spiritual relationship. And today in John chapter 2, verses 13 to 17, we will discover here the zeal and the passion that motivated Christ. And hopefully by learning about him, some of that earnest desire for godly things that Christ had will rub off on us as well as we exalt Christ, as we lift up Christ and seek to be like him. Let's read John 2, verses 13 to 17. It says, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. In verse 13 here, we are told that Jesus was going up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. 
That would be a required annual event for any devout Jew over 12 years old. And we know what the Passover is. It's a celebration of God's deliverance of the Israelites out of slavery to Egypt. And every year, the Israelites would then celebrate this when the the death angel, if you remember, passed over those houses where the blood was applied. It was a look back into into the goodness and providence and grace and mercy of God that brings them out of slavery to Egypt. Yet, we also know that it was much more than this, don't we? We now, because of the completed canon of Scripture, the Israelites maybe had hints of this throughout their their history, but we now look back and we say, oh, Passover is a lot more than just a look back on God's goodness. Passover, the, the annual celebration of Passover, is also a look ahead for these people about what Christ would do that he was the lamb come to take away the sins of the world. He was, that, that, door, that uh, blood over the doorpost, that was to picture Christ who was coming. Well, in this story, John 2, they're celebrating Passover, which looks back, but also looks ahead to the one who would come. And guess what? The one who would come has come. And he arrives on the scene here at the temple. He sees what's going on, and he's not too pleased with what he saw. As Jesus looks around, he sees that this celebration of God's greatness and his providence and deliverance had all of a sudden been turned into a rabid flea market of buying and selling, buying and selling, everyone trying to make a buck. And this is what happened in that time period. Every Passover, every Passover season, the temple flea market opened. And business was, was booming. Dealers would come and they would, they would profit greatly by selling sacrificial animals to the people that would come so that those traveling distances wouldn't have to bring those animals with them. Wasn't that so nice of them to offer that? But at the same time, they were making good money. Also, it talks here about the money changers who would charge exorbitant rates for those who came from other countries, Jews from other countries that would come to celebrate and didn't have the right currency. They would have to exchange their money to the right currency in order to pay some of the temple taxes and things like that. Well, isn't that so nice of them? Well, they're making money off these people. The praise of God in the temple has been replaced with profit margins, marketing slogans, sales pitches, and the clanking of coins. People were profiting off of a sacred ceremony, and they'd turned the Passover at the temple into a sham. Aren't you glad nothing like that happens in churches anywhere today? Isn't that good? We've, we've crossed that bridge, and that's over with. You know, instead of a place of holiness here that it was designed to be, a place of gratefulness, a place of prayer, the temple had become a marketplace of greed. Everyone angling for their own advancement. And I I think somewhere hidden in there, tucked in there somewhere, is a lesson for all of us, is, is there not? The sacredness of the Passover, the sacredness of the temple, and what it meant at this point in time had disappeared. It was gone. And it brings me to a question. You have Pharisees who are religiously zealous. You have religious leaders at this time. Where, why did they allow that to happen? 
What happened along the line here that the religious leaders and the, the chief priests and the elders of Israel at that time would stand by and watch that and say that it's okay? Where was their zeal for God's house? Where is their zeal for the temple and for the Passover and what it truly meant? Well, I think they had zeal, but I think their zeal for God's house was probably outdone by their zeal for money. Because think about it, what a great opportunity. Booth rentals, commissions, kickbacks, obviously providing these people with an opportunity for a little extra, a little extra dough, as it were. It was a full-blown, greedy carnival. And the religious leaders are complicit. That's the scene that Jesus walks into here in verses 13 and 14. And it says he found the temple in this condition, verse 14. Now Jesus sees the condition of the temple and Jesus has a choice to make. He sees what's happening here and you think, okay, what is Jesus going to do once he sees this? Does he just kind of let it go and move on? Does he say, hey, you know, that's kind of, you know, that ship has sailed. I think I'll probably put my energy somewhere else, somewhere where people might be, you know, there might still be a little bit of hope. Or does he respond to this desecration? Oh, he responds. He responds. And he responds pretty firmly, pretty directly, and even as you read through this, it maybe even seems a little harsh. He makes a whip out of cords, verse 15. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. Jesus had certainly announced his arrival. He was not happy one bit because the temple was nothing like it should have been. This was not how it was supposed to be. It was supposed to be a place of holiness and prayer, and it had become a marketplace of greed. Now, this is the first time this happens, John 2, but if you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all record a second time that Jesus cleanses the temple, and that happens right after Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem within that last week of his earthly life, what we would consider the passion week. And in that instance, in those, that second cleansing of the temple that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record, in that instance, Jesus says that these people have turned what is supposed to be a house of prayer into, remember the phrase, a den of thieves. Well, that's pretty harsh as well. And at the second cleansing, he also overturns the, the money changers' tables. He drives the animals and the people out. You know what that shows us? Apparently, they didn't le learn their lesson the first time, did they? Because Jesus had to come back about three years later and do it again. It also shows us something else, that Jesus' zeal, his passion for the Father, had not abated one bit. He was still zealous for the Father's honor. Now, it also brings another question up for us, and that is this. Does Jesus, does Jesus have the right and the authority to act in this way? To come into this temple and do what he just... Who does he think he is? Why does he think that he can act like this and demand the things that he demanded? Well, look at John 2, verse 16. He said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. He calls the temple his father's house. 
by familial connection and the authority of his father, Jesus says what he says and does what he does. But it's interesting he takes it a step further than this too. Because in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, at the second cleansing of the temple, each one of those synoptic gospels, quote, they, they quote Jesus as quoting Isaiah. And at the second cleansing of the temple, Jesus says these words. He says, my house shall be called a house of prayer, quoting Isaiah. Now in John, the first cleansing, he says, my father's house. The second cleansing, he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer. That's important. It tells us something about who Jesus is. That which belongs to the Father, Jesus claims as his own. You see that? John 10.30, Jesus said, I and my Father are one. What is the Father's, Jesus claims as his own. And Jesus comes to the temple and he says, this is my house. Now, as a father, this, it, it kind of sounds like that every, every dad's age-old final say statement, right? Where dad comes and he says, my house, my rules. That's basically what Jesus is saying here, is it not? So this is my house. It's going to be done how I want it to be done. And I told my wife recently, I said, you know what? That's one of the drawbacks of living at the parsonage. We don't own that house. I can't say my house, my rules. So what I do is I take the boys to the van. And I say, my van, my rules. So that's how, we, that's how we've solved that problem in, in our house. But no, all kidding aside, Jesus is, in a sense, basically saying that. This is my house. I'm the one that's going to tell you how things are going to be done in my house. Because the temple belongs to Christ. He has the right, he has the authority to drive the people out and overturn the tables. You know, there's a lesson there for us, too. This church. This church is to be Christ's, and he should have authority here to do what he wants to do in this church. No one usurps that authority. Our life is to be, as we're told in the New Testament several times, our life is to be in Christ. He has authority in your life to come and in your heart overturn the tables and kick out what needs to be kicked out. He has the right and the authority to do that. He is the Lord. He is the ruler of our life, of our church, of everything. Now, Jesus' response here, because we can look at that and say, oh, that's pretty harsh. He came in in pretty hard. Well, it's not because he was having a bad day. You know, he didn't didn't wake up on the wrong side of the bed that morning and then take it all out on on the temple people. No, his response is born out of an infinite zeal for God's house. And we see that in verse 17, but you have to kind of, you have to use a little creativity in your mind here because Jesus is going, you know, he's going off in the temple and driving these people out. Who's standing off to the side with Jesus watching this happen? The disciples. And you gotta be thinking, they're kind of standing off the side and they're even caught off guard a little bit. Like, what is he doing? What has gotten it? Why is he acting this way? And a couple of them probably thinking, he's going to get us all killed. And then one of them, according to John 2.17, one of them probably said, hey guys, remember, remember what was written about Christ? Zeal 
for his father's house. Zeal for your house has eaten me up. And they started to remember, yeah, what was said way back when, Jesus is, is acting that out at this point. And John 2.17 tells us that it was the disciples who in this instance, they don't often get a lot of credit, right? They're often kind of the, the ones to put things together slowly. But in this instance, they put the, together the pieces pretty quickly. And they say, we remember what was written, that it is zeal for the Father's house. That's what's motivating Christ. It's not a bad day. It's not his, his just desire to go off on somebody. It is zeal for his Father's house that is eating him up, that is consuming him. I think when you talk about this word, the word zeal, not a word we use too much in our, uh, in our vernacular today, but, but the word zeal, according to Merriam-Webster Dictionary, means an eagerness and ardent interest in pursuit of something. An eagerness and ardent interest in pursuit of something. You know, it's easy to spot a zealous sports fan, is it not? Do we have those pictures up there? Click the first one if you would. This man's name is John Peters. He is from Fremont, Ohio. Looks like a normal guy, right? You know who that is? Next picture. Same guy. Big nut. From Fremont, Ohio, who goes to almost every Ohio State game and acts like a fool at the game and always gets on TV. Same guy. You can spot a zealous sports fan, can't you? They go all out. He said his wife actually does, it's kind of weird, I was reading about him this week, but uh, his wife does his, uh, does his makeup and he puts it on, he gets ready, gets up early and gets to the game. It's incredible. It just takes, this, this different persona just takes over because he's a sports fan. There's another good example of this too, and it's coming up pretty soon. This picture, Black Friday shoppers. That takes some zeal. That is eagerness and ardent interest in pursuit of something. Those people are nuts. But they're after something, and they have a zeal to get it. We saw a little bit of that in our town to this week. As we came back into town on Monday, we're driving through town, and I see all of these lawn chairs on the side of the road. And my first thought was, a lot of people are getting rid of chairs these days. And then I thought... No, that's not, that, they're, that's for the Bratwurst Festival for the parade. They are putting these things out early. They are zealous for getting a good spot at this parade. Now, if any of that was you, that's fine. <laughs> but it's that type of desire that, that this zeal, this, that's what that communicates. One of Jesus' disciples, you can take that picture down. One of Jesus' disciples was named Simon. He was called Simon the Zealot. You know what he was zealous for? He was zealous for the overthrow of Rome before he met Christ. Now, Christ took his zeal and kind of redirected it towards the things of God, but he was called a zealot because he wanted to overthrow Rome. Excuse me. Now, is zeal always a good thing? Depends on what it's for, right? Some people are extremely passionate, extremely zealous for evil things. Did we not see some of that when Roe versus Wade was overturned? We, we saw the claws come out. We saw people that were zealous, but they were zealous for something evil. In Galatians 4 verse 18, uh, Paul tells us that it is good, I love the way he phrases this, it is good to be zealous in a good thing. It is good to be zealous in a good thing. Not just zeal, 
but zeal for a good thing. And Jesus, according to the disciples here in John 2, verse 17, he is zealous for his father's house. And as they're watching this happen, they remember what, what they had been taught growing up, the psalms that they had learned. And they're thinking back and they say, you know, that reminds me of a psalm. It reminds me of that one that says, zeal for my house has eaten me up. That psalm is Psalm 69. Would you go there? This is the one that's quoted in John 2.17. Psalm 69.9 is the, is the quote. But let's talk a little bit about Psalm 69 as a whole. Psalm 69, we read it in our scripture reading. You can kind of see it. It's a little bit of a sour psalm. He says he's going through so much. It's kind of a cry of desperation from David. We hear through the psalm, he's expressing the hatred and the suffering that he is experiencing from those around him. He's going through a lot at this point. You get the idea through the psalm that David maybe even thinks he might be killed shortly, that his life is almost over in some way. And I was thinking about this because it doesn't tell us when this psalm was written in David's life. But when would David have had opportunity to write about people that hated him? Basically, any time in his entire life, right? I mean, David, of all people, he had people that hated him all the time. King Saul hated him. His brothers hated him early on. Remember, they were jealous of him. Political, military opponents hated him throughout his kingship. Even his own sons hated him and wanted to overthrow him. So this could have come at any point in David's life. But what we see in Psalm 69 is true of David's life, true of the sufferings that he faced. Yet, as we've seen so many times in the Psalms, it finds its ultimate fulfillment in the sufferings of Christ. Because there's this foreshadowing, this just little bit of a taste of what we're going to see and what the New Testament spells out for us that is true about Christ. Some of this we've already seen. We've, co- we've been to Psalm 69 a couple times already in our study of the Psalms. Let me remind us of, a, of some of these. Verse 4, he says, those who hate me without a cause. That's applied to Christ. Christ says that himself. Because people hated Christ. Did they have a cause? Was there something in Jesus that caused them to hate him? No. Psalm 69, 21. They also gave me gall for my food and for my thirst. They gave me vinegar to drink. Where does that come in Jesus's life? That's one of the events of the cross as Jesus was hanging there, a foreshadowing. We see that in Matthew 27, verse 34. Then verse 25 says, let their dwelling place be desolate. Let no one live in their tents. This verse is quoted by Peter in Acts 1:20 in reference to Judas's betrayal and the circumstances, the consequences of Judas's betrayal. And in Psalm 69.9, the second part is actually quoted in the New Testament as well. We're going to look at the first part of verse 9. Look at the second phrase of verse 9. It says, the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Paul quotes this in Romans 15.3. And the reason he quotes it is to inspire us to live like Christ did. In what way did Christ take on the reproaches of mankind on Calvary? All of the reproaches, the rebellion, the sin against God from mankind is laid on Christ. Christ bore the weight of man's hatred toward God. And he did it, why? For us. 
He did it on our behalf. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Because what is sin? Sin is rebellion against God. Sin is reproach against God. And all that reproach, it tells us here, all that reproach, that rebellion was placed on Christ. That's the payment for sin. And by the way, if you're sitting here today and you, you have not trusted in Christ, that is the only way, he is the only way to be forgiven of your sins. Sin was placed on Christ. There is no other one you can turn to. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Christ. Our focus this morning, though, is on the first part of verse 9. David writes, because zeal for your house has eaten me up. Now, David, we know, Acts tells us, was the man after God's own heart. Not perfect by any stretch, right? But a man striving to please God. And I think what he's saying here in verse 9 is that much of the suffering that he endured during his time was because he was zealous to preserve the honor of God and his house. He was zealous to give God the honor he deserves. And because of that, he was facing much of the suffering. And the same could be applied to Jesus as well. Jesus' passion for what his father's house should be, his passion for the father's honor, put him at odds with what was happening in John 2 at the temple that day, didn't it? He's looking at what's happening there and he says, my zeal for my father's house cannot allow this to happen. He was so zealous for the honor and reverence of his father that he had to do something. Now, this phrase in, in verse 9 that's quoted in John 2, it says, zeal for the father was eating Jesus up. That's a phrase we use sometimes, right? Man, that just eats me up. Well, what does that mean? Well, the ESV translated, uh, translates this as zeal for your house consumes me. And that's what it means, isn't it? Man, that is just eating me up. It's just I can't think of anything else. It consumes everything that I do. So here Jesus comes onto the scene in John 2, and he is so in tune with God's honor, so in tune, so concerned for God to be revered that it, it's all he can think about. He says it, it's eating him up. He's consumed with that passion. It is the life work and goal of Jesus to bring honor to the Father. He says so much in a few places. John 6, 38, Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 8, 29, Jesus said, I always do those things that please him talking about the Father. And that's why Jesus cannot stand to the side and watch this desecration in the temple. He can't do it. He has too much zeal, too much passion for God. And here's the reason why. Because nothing else matters if the Father is not honored. It's true for Jesus, and he proved that time and time again. It's true for all of us, is it not? That nothing else matters if the Father is not honored in our lives. To be like Christ is to be zealous for what Christ is zealous for. And what was he zealous for? The honor of the Father. Nothing else matters if the Father is not honored. The pews can be full. The carpet can be clean. 
The bills can be paid. We can have 200 students over at the school. It doesn't matter if the father is not honored. To zealously honor the father is what it means to be like Christ. Would you go in your Bibles to Romans 10? Romans 10, Paul uses this word zeal and applies it to the Jews of his day. And there's a big lesson for us to learn here in Romans 10. Romans 10, verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. What Paul says here is that the Jews have zeal, but it's not according to knowledge. They were zealous for law-keeping. They were zealous for for self-righteousness. They were fervent in their religiosity, but it all missed the point. Why? Because the Father was not honored in it. It was absent of Christ. See, zeal is good. Zeal for a good thing is so much better. The Pharisees were as zealous as they could be, but they were ignorant of God's righteousness. Therefore, their zeal was misguided. It was misplaced because it was all for the wrong thing. And I wonder how often that describes us. How many times through a day, how many times in our lives does that describe us? Zeal, but misplaced. Zeal for everything else except for what is most important in life. Maybe zeal for a career, zeal for a sports team, zeal for a hobby, zeal for success in life, you name it, you fill in that blank. But where is our zeal, our earnest passion for the things of God? Because to honor the Father is zeal according to knowledge. ask a couple kind of rhetorical questions as, as, we, as we finish up here shortly. Are you zealous for God and the kingdom of Christ? Or is it truly just another day and another dollar? Are you eager for the word of God like a newborn baby desires milk? Do you seek after God as the deer pants for the water? Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Do you long to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? I would dare say that some of us probably need a good kick in the pants and a godly injection of holy zeal. It would would in some way jumpstart us out of the spiritual motions and and the rut that we've developed for ourselves. You know the worst thing about a rut? The very worst thing about a rut is that the longer you're in it, the deeper you get in it and the higher the walls and the sides go. And it is harder and harder and harder to get out of it. Francis Chan in his book on the Holy Spirit asks this provoking question. He says, what would your church and the worldwide church look like 
if everyone was as committed as you are? If everyone gave and served and prayed exactly like you, would the church be healthy and empowered? Or would it be weak and listless? That should provoke us to thought, what if every single other person in this church had the same zeal that I have? And that could take us in two entirely different directions, depending on the answer. I think in churches all over America, we have an epidemic of just not caring. It affects our worship. It affects our missionaries. It affects our outreach. It affects everything that we do. We just don't care like we should. If everyone had the fire that you have for God or the lack thereof, what would it look like? In Titus chapter 2, we looked at these verses on Wednesday night this week. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. Let me just read through these and make a, make a comment or two. Titus 2.11, he says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous, for good works. That passage starts with the grace of God in Christ that is infused into the life of the believer. And it ends, the result of that, the result of the grace of God is that we are made zealous in Christ for good works. Grace, zeal for God. A passion for God. I think sometimes we get the, we get the wrong impression we say, oh, that, that guy's a fanatic. He's over the top. But honestly, a passion for God to do, and, and, and to do his will is the standard operating procedure for the Christian. Should be. That should be standard. That should be like the base level. That's our reasonable sacrifice. Now, that's going to look a little different in each person, right? Because we all have different personalities. Some of us are extroverted. Right? You can kind of sense the zeal. It's all kind of out here on the sleeves. It's all out in front of us. And we're like, you know, let's go get life. And so their passion will probably be lived out more gregariously. But then we have introverted people too. And I'm not saying introverts have to act like extroverts in order to show their zeal. Their zeal for God may be displayed differently, but guess what? It's still zeal for God within the personality that he's given to you. Zeal for God is not just something for the unusually supernatural people. It is to be what defines all of us in some way. It was what defined Christ. Zeal for the Father's house consumed him. It ate him up. Where's that in us? What is it that eats us up? To be like Christ is to be zealous for what Christ is zealous for. The honor of the Father. Let's pray.